good to see everyone this morning. It's good to be together on this first day of the week. Um, I want to speak this morning uh, about marriage. Our Lord here in Matthew 19 has some teaching on, on the matter, and we can look throughout Scripture and see some other things, which we'll call to account this morning, but I, I really wanted this lesson to be a very practical lesson, because we do have uh, members um, and people sitting in this audience who are not married, so I thought this would be a good time for us to, to talk about marriage and decisions that will be upcoming for um, those of us, uh, or those of you, uh, who might be marrying in the future, in the near future, or the distant future. For those of us who are married, it will be a good, hopefully a good reminder and a good lesson, and hopefully, which we'll wrap up with at the very end of the lesson, a good reminder that we need to be teaching these things, that these uh, kinds of lessons and these, this application of God's Word, when it comes to choosing who you will spend the rest of your life with in marriage, um, these need to be taught. Maybe there's grandchildren in your life, maybe there's still young children in your life. These things need to be taught because these are very important decisions that we will make. And so I titled the lesson, um, Who Should I Marry? So I want to present this lesson in this kind of fashion as, as uh, someone who is considering marrying and, and or is looking out there into the world and trying to decide what kind of person um, should I choose to be my husband or to be my wife. And so I hope that this lesson will be very practical in, in that kind of way. And of course, we know that God's Word is, is uh, full of instruction and telling us um, not just about um, a, a spouse, but as, as just brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and a lot of those kind of uh, attributes and traits we can uh, identify with as someone that we those traits that we would want in a spouse as well. So we have a lot to talk about. Um, we'll only probably brush the surface, but let's look at this in this way. Who should I marry? Let's start off with this question, or you, or you should start off with this question. Does this person have the right to marry? So if there's someone that you're considering, or if even before that, if you're making your list and want to know where to begin, you need to begin here. Does the person... Um, have a right to marry. And in, I will tell you that in order uh, to marry, in the eyes of God, and I understand that the world sees this very differently, but in the eyes of God, if a person wants to get married or you're looking for that person that you might marry, um, a person must have never been married before or they had been married before but they lost their spouse to death the death of their spouse, or that person has put away their spouse for the reason of adultery. If this, these, one of these conditions or more of these conditions cannot be met, then that person does not have the right to marry in the eyes of God. Again, in the eyes of God is important because the world sees this very differently. And the world would say, well, you know, whatever the reason for divorce or whatever the reason might be, you can just remarry. Well, God's teachings are very clear in the matter. 
And Matthew 19 points to that very idea where Jesus is speaking there. These are the people that have the right to be married. So that's where we start. And understanding that <clears throat> it's very important um, that the person you're looking at fit one or more of these qualifications. Save yourself some heartache um, otherwise. Over in um, 1 Corinthians 7, just to, to emphasize the points that, that, are, that I'm making here, in 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 39, uh, it says there that a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. And I would submit to you that that phrase there, only in the Lord, speaks to these uh, qualifications for that person to, to marry. It says that she may, wish, may marry whom she wishes, but, but to be rightfully married in the eyes of God, they would have to fit into one, one or more of these categories. So keep that in mind. Also, in uh, Mark chapter 10, Turn with me there, because this is important in understanding this. This is uh, Mark's accounting of what we just read there in Matthew chapter 19. But I wanted to go here and read this, Mark's accounting of, of this, where Jesus is speaking. Some of the Pharisees come to him, verse 2 of Mark 10, testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. So that's what they got used to being able to do. But Jesus corrects this. In verse 4 he says, and they, uh, verse 5 he says, Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote this commandment. Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses did this. Okay? Well, what Jesus says, verse 6, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus is correcting the teaching and correcting the, uh, the status and, and the... the, the um, the procedure which they had gotten used to, that they could just write a certificate of divorce and be divorced. Jesus says it's not always been that way. In the beginning, God made them male and female and put them together through the institution of marriage, and whatever he puts together, let no man separate. So that clears it up for us, hopefully, in a very concise manner, about the qualification for one to even have the right to marry. They must have never been married before, lost a spouse to death, or put away a spouse for adultery. So that's where your list should begin. Make sure that they fall into one of those categories, or one or more of those categories. So you might ask the next question, is the person I'm going to marry, or want to marry, a Christian? Now, let me qualify this and say, while I don't believe that it is a sin to marry a non-Christian, I cannot recommend it. And I qualify that in this way because I know that there are brethren who uh, look at passage like 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 14 where it says, do not, to be, do not be bound together with unbelievers. 
Um, other translations render that, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And some of our brethren would say that that prohibits uh, a Christian from marrying a non-Christian. And I'm not here to, to criticize or discuss or argue that point. I would just say, for me personally, I don't believe it's a sin to marry a non-Christian. But I will further qualify that by saying that I cannot recommend it. And there's lots of reasons why, but I just thought about a few of those reasons. Think about the difficulty in conversion, um, of just converting people in the world, friends and family and those that we come in contact with. That it can be a, a difficult process. Um, think about if that's your spouse. Or what about the idea that if they uh, have not become converted and they were to pass away unexpectedly, um, they would be eternally lost. And that's a terrible um, thing to think about and, con and a condition to, to consider. Or what about being a stumbling block? What if they're... Um, prohibit you from worshiping the way in which you'd like to worship or doing the things that you would like to, to do as a Christian or doing the things that you were instructed to do as a Christian and they become a stumbling block to you? Or what about the effect on the children? Those are some things that are very um, difficult for us to, to, to overcome. Now, I'm not saying they're impossible to overcome. We all know examples of, uh, of the opposite of this where they, uh, a Christian and non-Christian married, and eventually the other one became converted, and they, they've gone on to live a very happy and successful life and raise believing children. Uh, it's, it's not impossible. But, again, starting off that way, entering into it, if I were counseling uh, young people, I would, I would not counsel them to do that. I would counsel them to, uh, to seek out another Christian to avoid a lot of this. Another thing to think about on the other side of it is um, they don't get to share your joys in being a Christian. So we talk about the negative things about it, but what about the positive things? What about the things that we get to, to enjoy and, to, and are celebrating our fellowship with one another and, and, and to be a part of that? And they can't, they can't be a part of that. That's, that's a sad thing for them, but it's also sad for, for you as a Christian that they can't uh, engage with you in the very mo the most important things of your life. So think about that as well. And and though not exactly the same, the Old Testament helps to um, to warn us about some of these things. Look with me in Deuteronomy chapter seven, Deuteronomy seven. And I qualify this again by saying that uh, this is not exactly. Um, we can't extrapolate from the Old Testament with God's instructions on intermarrying and, and pull that into the New Testament and, and, bind, and try to bind that on people because the times were different. God instructed his children as they enter into uh, the land of Canaan, as Moses is recalling to them here in Deuteronomy 7, beginning in verse 3. He says, Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. So the instructions to the Israelites as they are entering into the promised land, God says don't intermarry with those in the world, that your marriages are going to be amongst 
your people. And there's other reasons for that that do not translate into the New Testament. This was a God's own people. He had a special reason for keeping them that way. But one thing that, that we can pull from this is one of the reasons behind it, which is expressed here in verse 4. It says, For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will uh, quickly destroy you. In verse 5, it says, But thus you shall do to them, you shall tear down their altars, and smash their sacred pillars, and hew down their, ash, uh, their ashram, and burn their graven images with fire. So God had a couple of reasons for the way he dealt with his children. One was that he, was, he didn't want not, did not want them to intermarry because he wanted his people to be a pure people. And as the Savior, as Jesus would come through the bloodlines of his people, there was, a, there was an important reason to protect that. And he didn't want the, 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 the hostile and evil nations around to be intermarried. And in fact, he wanted to use them, his children, to punish those nations. And that's very different from us today, of course. In verse 6, it says... And here's where we can, again, go back to see some of the reasons why and understand it, and we can take some lessons from this. Verse 6, it says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So we can take that lesson out and say, you know, God wants his people uh, to... Uh, to uh, marry and to, and to have those families that will continue to be followers of his. And we are putting that in jeopardy if we are um, intermarrying. Please let, understand the use of that word for what it is. He wants us to be faithful children of his, and we run the risk uh, of not doing that, of being influenced, like it says there in verse 4, turn away from following me and serve other gods. We run that risk. So he doesn't expect us to be a pure people and does not expect us to inter, not to intermarry with people of the world and other nations and other races. That's not it at all. But he does want us to keep the faith and to do everything that we can to preserve the faith that is being handed down from generation to generation. And that's at the heart of this, is how do we pass along what we have learned as Christians to our own children and those children to their children. And that's what's at stake here. Over in uh, Nehemiah, um, Nehemiah is dealing with this issue as well. And we, we studied this recently. We remember Nehemiah is, is one of those who comes back from captivity and it takes it upon himself to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And he is, along with the building projects, he's also helping to restore their faith and restore temple worship. But they still have a problem. They still have a problem of intermarriage. And Nehemiah goes away for a while back to Susa um, to be with the Artaxerxes, the king there of Persia at the time. And he comes back, and the same problems have cropped up again. So Nehemiah 13 and verse 23 says, In those days I saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod and Ammon and Moab. As for their children, half spoke the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So again, not exactly the same, but you can see the problems that they're having is they're drifting away from the faith, 
and their children are dri- and they're taking their children along with them. Their children can't even speak their native language. They're speaking the language of the other people around. Now, <laughs> verse 25, he says, So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair. By no means am I advocating for that, but this is what Nehemiah did in his time. Took it upon him to physically get their attention. And made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to the sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. And here's another point that he pulls out that, that helps us to understand this. Verse 26, he says, Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? So even Solomon, as close a relationship he had with God, he was pulled away by marrying other women who were not of the faith. And that pulled him away from God. And it had terrible consequences. It split the kingdom. It would lead to the downfall of Israel, eventually the downfall of Judah. Terrible consequences because because Solomon was led away from the faith. So take that lesson as part of this and understanding that it's hard enough holding on to our own faith in, in times of trouble and in, in, in converting other people, be very careful about who it is that you choose to spend the rest of your life with. Something else that we should consider. This is a pretty good practical application here. Is this person stable? Um, lots of things that we can talk about in this, but let's start here. Is their claim to be a Christian authentic? You know, Lots of people in the world claim to be Christians, but are they really? In Matthew 7, verse 21, that's a familiar verse to us. Not everyone, as Jesus says there, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Lots of claims out there to be Christian and to to follow after God, but there's some careful examination that needs to take place to make sure that they are indeed a Christian, and they are indeed following after God's will. Because if they're not, then they're not truly acting as a Christian would act. So make sure that they're authentic in their claim. And just from a very practical standpoint, what is their, uh, their personality like? Are they a happy or a sad person? That passage there in... Um, Proverbs 17, verse 22, it says, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. What kind of person is it that you're considering marrying? Are they a happy person or a sad person? You need to take that into account. Um, are they only concerned with their self? Look with me over in Philippians chapter 2. And this is uh, uh, one of those things that really speaks a lot to someone's character is how they go about treating others in relation to themselves. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul writing here, he says, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Now, I mentioned a while ago that there's some applications from just existing with brothers and sisters in Christ that we can pull into 
the marriage relationship, and this is one of those places. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit with humility. Let each one of you regard another as more important than himself. That goes all the way into the marriage relationship, doesn't it? Verse 4 says, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. If the person you're considering married is all concerned with self and not really concerned with others around him or her, you might think twice about how that will relate and, and pull into the marriage relationship. Are they going to put you ahead of their own needs? Well, they're not doing it for anybody else in the world. Why would you consider that they would do it for you? It needs to be considered. What kind of a person are they? Are they slow to anger or are they, are they quick to anger? In, Hebrew, uh, beg your pardon, in James chapter 1, James speaks to this in verse 19, beginning he says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, but slow to speak and slow to anger. For the anger of a man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Read that again. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. If this is an angry person and they have anger issues, that's not going to accomplish the righteousness of God. You need to look carefully at that person and see what kind of uh, overall personality personality they have. Something else. Are they lazy or are they resourceful? Look over there in Proverbs chapter 6. I was going to just pull the first verse of this uh, here in verse 6, but I I, I couldn't stop reading because (laughs) think about what is being said here. We're familiar with that, Proverbs 6, verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise. Which, having no chief officer or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provisions in the harvest? How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come in like a vagabond and your need like an armed man proverbial words here. Look at the ant. Look what she does. She prepares. She, she uh, pulls her food in for the harvest and, uh, under the direction of no one. She's just doing this. And, the, and the, pro- the proverb writer here is telling us, look to that as an example of, of someone who is taking care and being resourceful of their needs. The other side of that, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, not really worried about what's going to happen, where your next meal is going to come from, what, what's going to happen tomorrow. You're just content to, to, to drift through, and your poverty will come, like, come in like a vagabond, and your need like an armed man. The sentiment there is when, when it strikes your poverty, it's going to be like a terrible need, like a, a vagabond, like someone who needs something right away. Or your need, like an armed man, when you have a need that's going to come in like a, like a soldier, like someone who is, is dressed for battle, and that's your need. It's, it's not going to wait. It's not going to be put off. It's going to be demanding. Your poverty and your need are going to be demanded upon you right then. So is that the kind of person that you're looking at? Or do you want someone who's like the ant in this, in this proverb, who's setting aside and, and preparing for those times? Look over in uh, 1 Thessalonians to bring this, uh, the New Testament teaching on this. 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, 
one of my favorite passages here as far as how we go about living our life. Some very practical, uh, succinct way that's expressed about how we should live our life as a Christian. I think this is one of those places where it hits at that. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning of verse 9, it says, Now as for the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice toward all the brethren who are in all of Macedonia. You're doing it right. You're, you are showing and demonstrating a love uh, for the brethren. But, at the end of verse 10, we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. There's still room for improvement. There's still room to, to learn more and to do more. In verse 11, to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we command you so that you may behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Doesn't that sum it up as far as our life goes? Work quietly with your hands, mind your own business. And why? So that you'll have the need, the, the funds available, the means by which you can help someone who is in need. If we're um, only concerned with self and we're piling up money and never spend that on anybody else, we're not practicing this. The, the, the point of having a job and, and, and providing for ourselves is to provide for ourselves, but it's also to provide those on the outside who are in need. And how do you go about doing that? Well, you excel still more. You, you, you increase. You continue to build up. And you live, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Attend to your own business and work with your hands. There's a lot of dignity in what's being expressed here. Be able to work with your hands to take care of yourself and to take care of those who are in need. So what kind of a person are you looking at? Are you looking at that person who's a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest? Or are you looking for someone who is minding their business, working hard, being resourceful? Look very carefully. And then just how do they manage their life overall? You know, what is it that um, they're doing uh, in, in the overall scheme of things? There in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8, it says, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So if you think it's okay just to, to sit back and, and, and do nothing, Paul here is very strong in the words that he says. If he's not providing for his own and those in his household, he, he's denied the faith. He's worse than an unbeliever. So it's our duty and our command to, to take care of ourselves and to take care of our own. There in Romans 13 and verse 8, Paul writing there, he says, Owe nothing to anyone except love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. You shouldn't owe anything to anybody else except to love them. You owe them that. So look very carefully at the person that you're going to, or you're thinking about marrying, and just make sure that that person is leading a quiet life and, and working with his or her hands. It's a good way to, to think about it. even more underlying than that is, is this a good person? Can you look at this person and say, you know, is, is this a good person? Does this person adhere to the golden rule? Matthew 7, verse 12. 
Anything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. This is what our Lord says. We sometimes call that the golden rule. We express it as do unto others as you would have them do to you. Are you treating other people the way you want people to treat you? Is the person you're looking at marrying, does, do they engage in that? Or, or are they just looking out for self again? Is the fruit of the Spirit evident in them? Look in uh, Galatians chapter 5. You know, this is another one of those kind of one-stop shops of looking and seeing, you know, what kind of characteristics do I, do I want to have as a Christian? And, and, and thereby seeing that, I want those same kind of characteristics to be in a potential spouse. In Galatians 5 and verse 22, it says there, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. These are the kind of qualities you want to look for in a spouse. Patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. And that speaks to, you know, what, how, do, how does this person manage their life? Are they in control of their life? in all aspects, from their finances to their, how they treat their family, how they treat outsiders, how they treat the boss or the people that work for them. You need to examine them and see how it is that they, that they treat others. And have they left the, uh, their old world behind, the old self, the old worldly person, have they left that behind? Look over in uh, Colossians chapter 3 where Paul expresses this this way, beginning in verse 5, he says, um, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is account of these things that the wrath of God will come, and in them you once walked, you once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside... Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put, them, put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free man, but Christ is all and in all. Have they left their old worldly life behind? Are they committed to putting aside anger and wrath and malice and slander? You need to look very carefully and see. Make sure that they have put aside and put away that old self. And that they have learned how to treat their brethren. Over in Ephesians 4, uh, verse 31 and 32, Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor uh, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Same kind of things we just talked about there. Put all those things away. Put all those things aside. Verse 32, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. That's what you ought to be looking for. One who has put aside the old self and has learned how to love those who are around him, and especially 
his or her brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the kind of person that you need to be looking for. I want to leave you with this. I made mention of it, and this is, really comes down to this. Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4. <clears throat> it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. that sound familiar? Remember when Jesus is asked, what's the great commandment? And he points back to this. That's where it comes from. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Think about that. When you, lie, when you sit down, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise up, on your hand, in your, on your forehead, write them on the doorpost of your house, on your gates. What does that show to you? It shows that wherever you look, you need to think about the Word of God. You need to think about the will of God. And that needs to be always in your view. Sitting, standing, walking, laying down, rising up. Around your, your, your gate and your doorposts on your hand, on your forehead. That's the kind of attitude we ought to have about the will of God. It needs to be foremost in our life. And guess what? This needs to be taught to our children so that all of that gets passed on to the next generation. And what's more important than teaching that, teaching a child to love God, teaching them to, uh, to be uh, in obedience to God. And if we leave out the part where you need to choose your spouse carefully because your spouse needs to be the same way, then we're doing them a disservice. We're letting them uh, make a big mistake if they go out into the world and don't look for this in a spouse. Again, it's not impossible. But we're doing them a disservice if we are not teaching them to look for these qualities in a mate. And how much easier and how much um, more successful their life will be if they start off in that way. There's no guarantees. I've seen things happen as well where <laughs> people marry and then one falls away from the faith. I'm a personal example of that. That happened to me. So that can happen too. There's no guarantees in this. But if we're going to start our children off right and we want to teach them the best that we can, let's teach them these things. And let's teach them to have these things in their sight all the time. So that as they're looking for that spouse, that potential mate, that they're looking through the will of God to see them. Make sure that they hold them to those same standards that they're holding them yourself. Make sure you're holding them to the same standards you hold yourself to. Don't sell yourself short. I hope this lesson's been encouraging to you. There's lots of teachings on marriage and much more that we can engage in, but I hope this has at least been a practical lesson for you and a, a concise one at that. Don't sell yourself short, those who are looking for uh, potential mates. 
hold them to high standards. Understand the, what the will of God is for each and every one of us. Look for someone who has put God first in their life and is, is seeking to be pleasing to God, and that person will be pleasing to you because they're going to put you ahead of their own needs, and you're going to put them ahead of your needs. So look for that person in a mate. Larry selected number 348. 348. <clears throat> Almost persuaded. You know, as we think about our, our life and our, our potential spouse, Paul calls our attention to, you know, the very idea of what Jesus has done for us and how that we've got to be forgiving of one another because God has forgiven us of our sins. The ultimate example that we can look at is our Lord Jesus Christ and the life that he led. If you need to know an example of how a Christian ought to live, look to his life. Try to pattern your life after him. Be humble. Be a servant. Be faithful to God. Be willing to lay down your life for your brethren. Be willing to give whatever of your means that you have. And look for that in a spouse as you want to spend the rest of your life with that person who's doing the same thing. <clears throat>